Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome to my first top 10 on the podcast channel, which is here because, well, if you listen to my most recent podcast episode, you know that I've decided uh, this year, in the, starting this new decade, a, a, a decade resolution to stop doing top 10 revisits and games of interest on the podcast and focus only on questions and answers because I get so many of them and uh, to now supplement the podcast feed and get a little bit of that back, I'm going to be including Roundup. You should have already heard the first one. And uh, Top 10s as separate standalone episodes. So, you are about to hear my Top 10 Games of the Last Decade, which was definitely a fun list to make. Although, before we get to that, I do want to add one thing, because a lot of folks who saw the YouTube video of this were left confused because... At the end of this top 10, I'm going to do a little statistical analysis of the last decade's worth of games. And one of the things I do is I talk about my top 100 games and how does it break down year by year and stuff like that. And here's the thing. Some people thought that meant that my top 100 games are composed entirely of games from the last 10 years. And anything older than 2010 doesn't make my top 100. That's not the case at all. Um, I've probably got about, I don't know, 20 or 25 games in my 100 best of all time that were published before the year 2010. It's just that when I get to the end of this top 10, I'm only talking about games from the last 10 years. The 100 best games of the last 10 years. Just wanted to be clear about that, although maybe I've made things more complex and uh, opaque now. But anyway, uh, enjoy the first of the now ongoing monthly top 10s that you can hear on this podcast channel. Take it away, me! Hey everybody, today Rado runs through his top 10 games of the decade. I'm a little late, I probably should have done this back in December, but uh, better late than never. And first of all, just to get this out of the way, folks, if you if you are one of the 0.0000000001% of humanity that actually uses, what is it, the ordinal decade method, please, I've heard it. I'm totally happy that you don't think the decade is over until the uh, 2021. That's fine. You know what? The rest of us have all agreed. The last decade is done now, and that's why we're celebrating it. Please, just come and celebrate with us. I don't need to hear it for the thousandth and oneth time that really, mm, the decade is not over yet. Actually, you know what? A decade is a completely arbitrary measurement of 10 years. So, the decade, all of us! Our celebrating is over now. The decade you re- recognize, that's fine. We'll, we'll get back to you next year. But, folks, sorry. It just drives me nuts. I've heard so many times. But enough of that. We're here to celebrate games and how wonderful and awesome they are. And so I'm going to tell you about the 10 best from the last 10 years. And um, I will not be dissuaded any longer. And, folks, 
If you stick around to the end, I got a little treat at the end because I, as I was doing this, I dug into my top 100 games of the last 10 years. And no, I'm not going to list all of them, but I did do some jiggery pokery and some math to figure out definitively not only what is the best game of the decade, but what was the best year of the decade. So you have to wait for the end for that. But uh, enough of all that business. If you folks are ready, then let's start the countdown with number 10. 10 Dungeon Pets, which, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, not Dungeon Pets. That's a spoiler for one that's coming up. Number 10 is Roll for the Galaxy. Oh man, I can't even avoid making goofs just counting to 10. All right, Roll for the Galaxy, which came out in 2014, is uh, my number 10 game of the year, and I love it. And my wife, Jen, loves it even more. This would be in her top three easily. And it's for a bunch of reasons. Um, you know, this is a dice game where every round, everybody rolls some custom, cool, very snazzy dice that represents all the stuff that their intergalactic empire can get up to. And over the course of the game, we are trying to build up a bigger and stronger and more powerful empire. But here's the interesting thing. Everybody rolls their dice uh, that's going to let them do whatever they want to do at the beginning of the round, and... We uh, apply them to different actions in secret. It's basically a dice worker placement game. And we put shields up, we hide our dice, and we decide whether these dice are going to let us explore the galaxy, or develop technologies, or settle, or produce things, or what have you. And everybody's doing this simultaneously, and then everybody with a flourish reveals what they chose. And this is the crux of the game. It is so exciting because you never know for certain what your opponents are going to do, but if you can get in their heads, if you can figure out, oh, they're going to be exploring this year, that means I can set aside some of my resources to piggyback off of their action. Now, if I guess they're going to explore and I set aside some resources, then they go off and do something else, I've wasted those resources. I'll get to use them next round, but that's a missed opportunity. So this game has the most wonderful form of interaction, which is to say, piggybacking off other players, getting in their head, knowing what it is they want to do, and using that to your own benefit. Because of course, other players are going to be doing the same to you. They're going think, oh my god, he's totally going to produce goods this round. Look at him. Um, he's, he's got all these things waiting to do it. I should uh, prepare to piggyback off him, but then who knows? Maybe I don't do that. And it throws all your plans for a loop. Um, knowing your opponents, knowing what their goals are, is key to victory in this game. And all of that aside, it's a great presentation. Uh, it tells great stories of the growth of intergalactic empires that are unique every time you play. Whether you start out as space pirates and then become space diplomats by the end, it's always interesting and compelling. The narrative that is woven by this combination of game mechanisms, and oh my gosh, we just love it to pieces. Uh, you know, Jen and I, we have played this so much now as a two-player game, it's a filler for us. We can get this game done start to finish in 20 minutes. And if all that weren't enough, it's had a couple of really great expansions as well. Uh, so yeah, Roll for the Galaxy, phenomenal. Better than Race for the Galaxy, which is the card game that this supplants? For me and Jen, yes. Not for everybody. But Race for the Galaxy doesn't matter because it came out last decade. This is the teens we're talking about. Not the uh, aughts, I suppose. And so, my number 10 of the uh, decade or of the previous 10 years, if you prefer, is uh, Roll for the Galaxy. But now, let's move on to number 9, which I kind of spoiled a little bit. Dungeon Pets. Hello, Dungeon Pets. Aren't you so cute and adorable? I want to take care of all of you and love you and feed you and let you grow big and strong so that I can ultimately sell you to a Dungeon Master so that you can stand watch over their dungeons. That is the setting of this game. We basically are running fantasy medieval pet shops. And 
The presentation of this game is amazing. The art is phenomenal. The pets are just so sweet and adorable. You really come to care for them in a meaningful way. Uh, Jen and I have found as we uh, you know continue to try to meet all their needs because there is nothing worse in all of board gaming than having to put a cube of sorrow when we fail to play with them when they were you know feeling lonely or we fail to feed them when they were hungry or whatever or even worse they break out and escape and then they're lost. Oh no, what to do? Uh, so. You know, again, uh, you know, like the previous one, this game tells such wonderful, interesting, and enriching stories that just grow and evolve naturally out of the gameplay mechanisms. And also, like the previous game, Roll for the Galaxy, Dungeon Pets has really tension-filled uh, gameplay because the central conceit is this is a worker placement game where everybody deploys their workers in secret. We, uh, again, put shields up, simultaneously decide where we're going to send all our imps, whether um, you know they're going to go, or we're going to send a big group or a small group, whether we're going to give them money or not. And then when everybody reveals, we then take turns deploying our workers to the board to get the resources we need to raise hale and healthy and hardy pets. So, once again, and that's really interesting, this, there's kind of an overlap between these two games. It's all about getting in the head of your opponent. Do I, do I feel confident that I'm going to be able to get that, um, that, uh, cage full of pillows that my pet wants because it fits his personality to a T? Um, or am I going to be able to go and get that, uh, magic potion? Or, uh, you know what, or am I going to go bribe the judges? Because we have, uh, pet shows where, uh, you know, the best pets are, Rated and all, you know, there's amazing all the depth in this game. Um, but it all comes down to, do I think I can get there? Because if so, I will arrange my troops accordingly. And then when we reveal, I'll find out if I was able to read your mind. And if not, I might not get what I want. It'll happen a lot. And then you got to change all your plans. But. It's always a lot of fun. And driving the whole thing is these cute, adorable little pets. Which only got more adorable in the uh, Back Alley expansion. Um, which, if you're looking at the video, is actually what I'm showing right now. Uh, although the pets in the original game are amazing as well. Again... The, I mean, actually, I should say, this game is incredibly deep. This is one of the heaviest games on this list. Do not be fooled by the sweet, charming, adorable art that makes it look like a family-friendly game. This is a major brain burner. Uh, but in the best possible way. Which is why it makes my number nine slot Dungeon Pets. Came out in 2011. Very, very good year. Now let's move on to the next one, my number eight. Seven Wonders. And I have to admit, I'm a little bummed. I almost felt like cheating and making Seven Wonders my number seven. But that's not the way it works out. It is It is my number eight. Um, even though it should be my number seven just for the alliteration of the name. But what is going on here? This is, this is the granddaddy of card drafting games. It came out at the beginning of the decade uh, in 2010. And um, ever since it came out and popularized, it didn't invent, but it popularized the idea of card drafting. I got a hand of cards. I pick one for myself and then give the rest to my neighbor. My other neighbor gives me more and we keep going until we played all the cards. You've seen this in so many games over the last 10 years, but I don't think it would have been nearly as popular if it weren't for the huge monster success of Seven Wonders. And even though 
I might go so far as to say, since Seven Wonders came out, there are other card drafting or tile drafting or, you know, uh, chip drafting games, dice drafting games that probably do the drafting even better than Seven Wonders. But what is it that puts Seven Wonders above all of them uh, and makes it into this list in the number eight slot? It's what you do with the cards once you've drafted it. Because there's a few things going on. One, these cards are multi-use. You can use them for their effect, or you can jettison them to get money, which you're going to need, or you can use them as the foundations to build the wonder of the ancient world that you're trying to build. So every card has three uses. That in and of itself is great. But what's more important is, as often as not, the cards you are getting allow you to generate resources. And you need those resources to build bigger, more complex additions to your civilization. And what will inevitably happen in this game is you will get to a point where, oh, I really want to build this. This is going to be amazing. It's going to be perfect. But I don't have, I can't generate glass. I need glass to be able to build this. But you know what? My neighbor generates glass. I handed them three rounds ago the card, the market card, that lets them generate glass because I didn't play it myself, and they played it. So if I want to play this card, I can do it. And i got to go visit them and get some glass from them. And that extra level of, again, interaction between players. That is not negative, it is positive. Oh, I see you've got some stuff. Would you like some money in exchange for glass so I can do my thing? They can't say no, but it doesn't hurt them. I'm not taking anything from them. I'm, I, I am creating opportunities for them. And it is awesome. You've got a neighbor to your left and to your right, and you're always paying attention. To, even if you're playing a full seven-player game, you really need to know, what can I get from you? What can I get from you? And you are thinking the same thing. What can you get from me? That um, binding all players together in this symbiotic relationship is phenomenal. And it's really the combination of all of these elements. The the, uh, top-of-class card drafting, the multi-use cards, and the symbiosis between players. That elevates Seven Wonders. But there's one more thing. And this is going to be a little controversial because some people hate, hate the two-player implementation for Seven Wonders. They think it was just an afterthought and it's crap and you should officially consider Seven Wonders a three-player minimum game. I disagree. Seven Wonders, as far as I'm concerned, is at its best with two players because the way it works is you and I are playing, we're neighbors, and there's a third free city uh, that's also adjoining us. It's like a third player and we share control over that third city. And that adds so much depth and richness because I can't control what you're doing, but I half the time I can control what that city is. So if I need that glass, I could set up the market for myself, or I could say, hey, Free City, you're going to do the glass, because I want to do this other thing, and I'm going to buy glass from you a few times for the rest of the game. And I mean, that just gives you so much more control. It is such a deep, rich game. It is much more complex. It is a much heavier game. The rules are right to suggest don't start out playing it as the two-player game. Get your comfort at higher player counts, then play the two-player game. But once you are good at... Oh, man. It is awesome. The free city system is phenomenal. And, you know, this came out back in 2010. And it was a great, um, you know, example for what we have seen over time. Uh, you know, coming more and more into games. The idea of, you know, game-controlled systems that emulate a third player so two players can get the full, rich experience. Seven Wonders was a really influential, a, a very, very trailblazing game because it popularized this idea because it was such a huge hit. So I love it. You already know that because I've just been talking about that forever. But anyway, that's Seven Wonders, our number eight uh, game of the decade. And now moving on to the true number seven, let's talk about Keyflower. 
Oh man, this game is phenomenal. Um, and it's interesting, a lot of people, well, if you, if you know my show, you know Jen and I are Care Bear players. We really hate attacking, um, each other, stealing from each other, destroying each other's stuff. Just can't stand it, have no use for that. And a lot of people think, yeah, why would you play Keyflower then? It's so mean hearted, it has a black, cruel heart. I disagree. At its heart, it's not Black Cruel Heart, Keyflower is an auction game. And it is a worker placement game. Uh, we are trying to grab these tiles to add them to our little settlement in the new world um, so that we can put our workers on there and use them to generate goods, to convert goods into other goods, to ship stuff around, to make victory points. You know, like a lot of yours. But here's the twist. Before we get those tiles to our village, we have to bid on them. We don't bid with money. We bid with our workers. So if I see a tile that I really want to have in my village for the rest of the game, I might bid really high for that tile. But that means I've thrown away a third of my workforce to do it. And now that I've got the tile, I've got no workers to put on it. Or, now here's where people think the game gets too mean-spirited. Um, I really want that, but you end up um, you know, beating me in the auction. You could even have ways, there are ways you could freeze me out. So I, even if I wanted it, I couldn't bid on it. And what does that mean? That means you get the tile and it goes to your village... It's not the end of the world, folks, because that means I can send my workers over to your village and I can still use that tile. When when it's out on the auction block, I don't own that tile yet. So I don't feel like you're stealing it from me. We're all just competing to grab tiles. Sometimes the best tile for you to get is one that you recognize I'll want, because then that means I'll keep visiting your village for the rest of the game. And that's good for you, because every time I send one of my workers to your village, you keep that worker. So my workforce drops, your workforce uh, grows. But you know what? To do that, you had to sacrifice your workforce to get the tile in the first place. It is a it's a beautiful circle of life, auctioning and working life, uh, that is really unlike anything else out there. It is so sharp and so smart. And I'm just scratching the surface. There's a lot of other very, very cool, interesting ideas and mechanisms here. Um, from the multicolored uh, workers to the way transportation works. But, you know, all this stuff together makes the uh, uh, key flower just the bee's knees. It is my number seven of the decade. Uh, came out, what, in 2012? And I've been loving it ever since. It's gotten so much expansion love over the years. Oh my gosh, it is so deep and so rich now. It's just amazing. Number seven, Keyflower. Now, let's move on to number six, Nations. This is a, uh, from the era of antiquities to the modern day epic scope civilization game. We will start out as ancient Mesopotamia or Egypt or China or whatever and slowly over the ages build up, watch our civilizations grow and flourish, see real historical personages come and lead us to greatness, make all kinds of wonderful breakthroughs and discoveries, uh, engage in war with our neighbors, all the stuff you expect from a big, epic, sprawling civilization game. As far as I'm concerned, I mean, I've played almost all of the big straight up Euroy. I, I would say I've played all the Euroy style uh, civilization games on the market. We've always avoided the ones that ha- feature dudes on a map, you know, like tactical, oh, I move over and I, I raise your civilization to the ground. We always avoid those. But there's a surprising amount of them out there where the war is still there, military, but it's kind of abstracted out. That's certainly the case for Nations. Anyway, I, I mentioned all this to say Nations is, as far as I'm concerned, the best civilization board game there is, bar none. Uh, because 
Um, yeah, because, uh, you know, the core gameplay conceits are so rich and compelling. At its heart, this is a card drafting game. At the beginning of every age, there's going to be a bunch of cards over there, and we're just racing to grab them as fast as we can, using up our sweet, precious resources to be able to get them so they can grow more stuff. And um, then once they become part of our civilization, we have to deploy our workers to them. And the more workers we put on a given card, the more it will produce for us. What will eventually happen, though, is no matter how much we love that card and how much it produces for us, because we put so much of our civilization's resources into it, sooner or later, that technology will be so epically, achingly primitive by compared to... I mean, who wants um, chariots when you could have planes? Sooner or later, you have to jettison and dump and replace and upgrade those technologies. And, um, you know, that's the crux of where the tension comes from. It is so heartbreaking because you've committed so much, but, you know, they've outlived their usefulness and it is time to move on and override. And, uh, yeah, it's just so compelling. But, you know, it's up to you when to do that. I have seen really successful players rocking spears at the end of the game, um, you know, in World War One era, um, because they really develop it and they trigger special abilities and all that. So you can, um, you can make any type of civilization you can imagine and find a valid way to victory. The more workers you have, the bigger your population gets so that they're actually working and running these cards, the more you have to, um, sacrifice every year and resources to keep them going. It's a very, very tight and tense game. And, I should talk about warfare because it's really interesting the way it works. Every age, there's going to be the opportunity to start a great war. And it's just another, it's effectively another card anybody can just kind of try to grab. And the player who does that establishes the, uh, the setting for the war. How strong militarily, or, um, or, or if not militarily, how strong does the stability of our civilization have to be to weather that? Because, uh, you know, we, you know, I might be the one who says, yeah, I got all that military. I can make this a really, really strong war. It doesn't mean I'm taking from you. It just means I have created inadvertently an event that is going to affect you. And now before the age is over, you have to prepare to protect yourself from that war. And you could build up your military or you could build up your stability so that you just slough it off and say, yeah, we're so rich and abundant here, we don't mind your little petty war. Um, so it is a bit more aggressive, and you can definitely make moves, but the thing is, you, you've got one of three paths to deal with the warfare. Either you're so strong militarily you don't care for it, about it. And by the way, military is incredibly expensive to maintain. If you have a strong military, you are weaker by almost every other metric in the game. Or you say to heck with it, I don't care about military. We build up our stability so we can just weather the storm. Or we don't bother with any of those and we have technologies that let us generate so much stuff because we're not pumping money into our military, our stability. We can afford to lose stuff because we're, we are still so crazy rich. So we're strong, we're stable, or we're rich. And we have found the military is just an interesting bit of spice. It's nothing that's aggressive or or cruel. And it's just it's just an event that pops up. So I mean, I love the way it works because you know it's 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 a nod to history and the reality of, of the human species, but it does it in a way that is much more Care Bear friendly. And, um, you know, for that and a million reasons more, I definitely got to say Nations, which came out in 2013, uh, we love it. It's the number six on the list. But then we move on to number five. Oh, baby. 
The Castles of Burgundy came out in 2011 from my favorite board game designer of all time, Stefan Feld, and this is his greatest design of all time. And that's saying something, because he has made so many amazing designs. I mean, he did not rest on his laurels. He has definitely followed this up with many beautiful, brilliant things uh, since then. But, um, you know, and in fact... Eh, Boy, uh, for a lot of people, you know, I, I had to think long and hard. Does, I mean, he has some other games that might be, but no, for me personally, this is such a brilliant game um, because, well, like all of his games, at its core, it has just an incredible, simplistic loop. In this game, every round, you're going to roll two dice, and those two, whatever you roll, determine what two things you are going to do. They're just numbered one through six. And the, the, the value of the dice means, oh, that gives me access to different tiles I can add to my little French duchy in, you know, Renaissance-era France, uh, in, in the Burgundy region. Uh, so I, I can grab tiles that are in a depot that's num- the, same, the same as the dice, or if I previously grabbed tiles and put them into my queue, I can deploy them out onto my board in spaces that have the same number. Or I can um, use those dice to ship off goods I've accumulated that have that number. Or I can just say, you know what? These dice aren't particularly good. I'm, I'm going to use them just to collect more workers that will let me mitigate and change die values on future turns so that I have more control over them. That's what it is. Roll two dice, use them, go on. Uh, and yet, from that simple kernel, this is such a rich and tense game because there are, there are tiles out there that everybody wants desperately. And the question is always, can I get them? What will the dice let me do? Uh, because the dice are the shackles. I, I, you know, I can go for the perfect die roll, and if I get them, hey, great. But if I don't get what I want, you got to start figuring out what else you're going to do. And I guarantee you, it may not always seem like it, but you can always zag in this game. There is always another viable option that will help you out down the road. At least if you're playing well. So that even though you might at first glance think, oh man, there's just way too much luck of the roll in this game. That's not the case at all. You are, even though the dice command you, you are still in control of your own destiny. And that's an amazing design accomplishment. Uh, you know, it's just something you I mean, you don't really see much. Usually when dice come in, you know, they become kind of, you know, their own fait accompli and you're at the mercy of them. Strictly speaking, you're at the mercy of the dice in this game, but I never feel that way because it gives me so many options. Without feeling too sandboxy and directionless, I mean, you're still focused like a laser, but, oh man, it's just, it's an amazing puzzle of a game. It is Stefan Feld's greatest game of all time, and he is the greatest modern designer, board, board game designer, as far as I'm concerned, so no surprise that um, Castles of Burgundy would come in. Uh, it's just a question of when. It came in at my number five. Then we move on to number four, Trois. Or Troyes, as uh, probably most people pronounce it, because French is hard, for, for American ears anyway. T-R-O-Y-E-S, pronounced Trois. And uh, this is another dice worker placement game, um, where you're going to use dice to activate... Um, investments that you have made in, again, this little French Renaissance-era village of Troyes. And, um, oh my gosh, how to describe this game. There is so much going on. Let's just focus, again, on the core central conceit that everything else revolves around. At the beginning of every round, everybody has dice that represent workers that they are able to leverage because of buildings and investments they have made. You're going to roll your dice, you're going to put them in your little depot, and then uh, we're going to take turns using our dice to activate our buildings to fight off uh, dangers that are that are attacking Twa, uh, you know, contributing to the church, <clears throat> all those kinds of things. But here's the thing. These dice in my depot, 
they're not really my dice. They're dice that kind of like me, because I brought them into this world, basically. But they have no allegiance to me. And when it's your turn, if you see the dice that I rolled, and you think, oh, those dice are perfect for me, you can pay me for my dice. And so again, this is another opportunity for players to synergistically work together. And it's great. I mean, this is a recurring theme. Now, a lot of people consider... I don't know why. They consider Trois to be a very aggressive cutthroat game. But I don't look at it that way because, again, they're not my dice. They're dice that I rolled, but they're just sitting there. They're dice I can get for free, and they cost you money. Money you have to pay to me. I have no expectation that I'm going to be able to use all those dice in front of me. If I roll well, I know they are going to get gobbled up. But you know what? That just means money is rolling in, and I can use it to buy dice from somebody else later on. Or I can convert that money into other opportunities for success. Um, because money gets very, very tight in this game. So, uh, more money means more flexibility. So yeah, go ahead and take my two yellow sixes. It would have been perfect for me to activate my building so you can activate your own building. That's cool because I'll very much enjoy those dice, or that, that cash money in the future. And yeah, again, this really does seem to be kind of a recurring theme in a lot of these games. Games where the interaction um, is, is, is not just the standard, oh, I burn your castle down or I steal your stuff. Uh, in this game, like some of the other ones I mentioned, yes, I can get stuff from you, but you get things in return. I didn't steal, I bought. And that feels kind of like real commerce. It feels more like the real world. It, I mean, the, the, the world of Trois comes alive with all the interesting and unexpected ways that the gameplay will develop over the course of the session you're going to play. And we love it to bits. Uh, you know, well, no surprise. Uh, you know, we, it was another game. Wow. 2010 was a good year. It came out and, uh, we have been loving it ever since. That is my number four. Then we have number three on the list, Gloomhaven. No surprise there. Uh, Gloomhaven is absolutely amazing. The greatest dungeon crawl of all time. Tactical skirmish cooperative game um, that is incredibly rich, evocative, deeply thematic, epic in its story and scope. It comes with, I forget, almost 100 or maybe even over 100 unique missions when you buy the base, plus expansions are coming out, plus more expansions are coming out. But even just what came in the box with all the different monsters, all the different playable characters, all the different... Uh, that all play radically differently. I mean, it's just amazing, a design feat. How, I mean, there's never two characters that are alike. And, I mean, each one of those characters can level up in different ways to get even more variety. But all of that aside, that's just volume. There's This is a kitchen sink game. There is so much you get. So many pieces. So many cardboard chits. Uh, so many stories. So many adventures. Putting that aside, what's the actual gameplay like? Because that's what makes this special. Your character gives you a hand of cards right from the beginning of the dungeon crawl. And um, when you run out of cards, you're dead. Or at least you're, you're KO'd. So, this is a ticking clock. You have to make the best use of these cards you can because you are slowly losing them to attrition throughout the mission. And so, you're under a constant, huge amount of pressure. You can't just play fast and loose and go, Yeehaw! We're just going to go and roll a bunch of dice and see what happens. This is such a deep, thinky, puzzly game because it is a game of attrition. It seems like you have insurmountable odds, and yet somehow, if you play smart, you will always win. At least, Jen and I, we almost always win. That's maybe another reason we enjoy it so much, even though it makes us feel so smart. Because here's the thing. All right, so the cards are effectively our life meter. But what are the cards? Each card has... Four uses. So they are multi-use cards. Each round, I'm going to take 
two cards. And I'm going to use one of the four uses of one of them and one of the four uses of the other. And those two things combined, or those two actions combined, are going to be what I'm going to do. And you're going to do the same every round. And here's the tricky thing. We're working together, but I have to choose in secret. I can't tell you what cards I'm going to play. You can't tell me what cards I'm going to play. I can talk vaguely. I can say, you know what? I'm going to rush over there and I'm going to try and hit this guy. Or, you know what? If you can get over to that space really quickly, I've got this awesome heal that I could throw your way and I could save you. Can you do it? So this kind of imperfect communication emulates in a turn-based way, the kind of fog of war you'd have. Because, you know, in a real combat situation, you don't have time to sit and think methodically about every single possible permutation of every action you could do. You just have to act instinctively and go. Now, in this game, it is a very crunchy strategic game. You spend a lot of time thinking about what you're going to do. But still, since you have imperfect information about what you or what your teammates are going to do, and also what the enemies are going to do, because they have their own deck of cards that will be revealed after everybody chooses their cards, it still feels like... You're fighting by the seat of your pants. Okay, I'm, I'm going to run over here really quick, but then it's going to take me a while to charge up this action because every card you play has an initiative value. So, and you can't talk about that either. I can't, I can say r- vaguely what I'm going to do, and I can say whether I'm going to try and do it really quick or really slow. And, but then you think, hey, you got to get over to that space fast, and I'll do a quick heal. But they're going to think, can I get there before you do the heal? Because my quick heal might have a 25. Your lowest, your fastest card might be a 30. You can't get there fast enough. But you can't be sure when I'm going to play it because you don't know what my initiative is. And so, again, there's this fog of war. We can't be 100% certain. And, and when everybody reveals their cards, sometimes it all comes together perfectly. I love when a plan comes together. Sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. It's all Now we have to fall back because that's the other thing too. You've chosen two cards to play. Each of them have four actions, you've chosen two. When it comes around to your turn, though, you don't have to stick to those actions. There are, on each of those cards, three other actions you could have done, and you can mix it up to respond to the fact that the whole battlefield changed with one card played by your teammate or by a bad guy. That is brilliant. That is what elevates Gloomhaven above all of its contemporaries. There has never been a smarter, richer, deeper, more interesting and compelling and addictive uh, dungeon crawl. We love it to pieces. Uh, 2017 was a very good year because it brought Gloomhaven, my number three game of the decade. And by the way, my number three game of all time. Okay, so, but let's move on to number two. An even greater game, if you can imagine such a thing, 2014 gave us Shadowrun Crossfire. This is another cooperative adventure game, but um, unlike Gloomhaven, this is not a big, epic, sprawling, expansive kitchen sink of a game where they threw everything into the box. Uh, or everything but the kitchen sink, I should say. This is a tight, elegant, fast-playing, and brutal absolutely brutal cooperative deck builder where um, you and I, if we're playing cooperative, you can play solo, are working together just to try to stay alive and fight off wave after wave of cyberpunk villains bound and determined to shut us down and prevent us from getting out of town. Because of uh, the job we were hired to do went epically wrong. We're just trying to get out alive. And uh, it seems like Every uh, cyberpunk villain out there is out there to, to is 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 breathing down our necks, trying to chase us down. As we desperately do whatever we can to stay alive and maybe build uh, the tiniest bit. This is a deck building game, but it almost doesn't feel like that because over the course of the game, you start with a very very thin deck of cards, and over the course of the game, 
you will only add a few cards to it. Um, you don't get to do that much stuff. So every choice you make in this game is so laden with consequence. One wrong choice, um, not card draw, but one wrong choice in the first round of the game can lose the whole game for you. And that's not really a problem because this is a game that you can finish in under a half an hour. Win or lose. It is fast, fast, fast. And the odds are against you and it requires pitch perfect play. It is very cruel and unforgiving. And a lot of people incorrectly believe that it is very luck-swingy and unpredictable and unfair. And I'm here to tell you, folks, that's not true. The developers of this game, they win 90% of the time. Uh, so it is not luck that determines what... If you get to the third wave and some crossfire card comes out and it and you say, there's literally nothing we could have done to survive this. This absolutely destroyed us. It was unfair. There's no way we could have seen it coming. And here's the thing. The reason that card destroyed you is because back in the first or second turn, you bought X when you could have bought Y. You made choices. If you make the right choices throughout the game, you will you can handle anything this game throws at you. But... The brilliance of this game is everything's counterintuitive. You see a, a card you could buy that, oh my gosh, this is an incredible medical card, you know, Doc Wagon, it'll heal us no matter what, it'll totally keep us alive. That card is a trap. Do not buy that. Because if you buy that to try to play defensively, that means you didn't get a weapon to shut down enemies as fast as possible. Um, it's all about reading the situation and getting the right cards based on what you've already put in your deck, what your teammate has put in your deck, because this is a deck builder with a lot of overlap. There's lots of things like I can do on your turn for assists and all sorts of things. It's brilliant. We love it because it is so harsh and brutal. And the interesting thing is my wife is generally pretty dismissive of cooperative games where she doesn't feel like she has a chance of winning. But that's the thing. We can always identify if we lose, and we lose about 50% of the time now, why? What was that choice? If we'd made this other choice here, um, and that would have led to a different outcome, and we might have had a chance of making it. And um, so we never blame the game. It's just another opportunity to learn and get smarter, if you're willing to do it. If you just play by the same tropes that you have learned from pretty much every other fantasy cooperative adventure game, you'll lose more often and you'll get frustrated. Another thing that's absolutely brilliant about this game that I love is the fact that if you and I are on a shadow run together and you get KO'd, we can still win. Because when one player gets KO'd, the other player has to abort. And that means they have one round, and all they got to do is survive. But everybody that was on you jumps on that one player. So if I can survive one more round, I can abort, I can pull you out of the fire and get us out to safety. And that's kind of like a quick instant win. You don't earn as many experience points, because by the way, this is a, a campaign game where over multiple plays, you level up. It takes It's a very, very slow burn. I've played the game over 50 times now. And um, you know, I've, I've still haven't even come anywhere close to getting to some of the really big high-level stuff that I can level my characters up for. But um, that abort system is brilliant as well. Because that's another thing. If the writing is on the wall and you think, I don't think we're going to survive, we need to start preparing to abort now because you're about to be taken out. So if we change our entire strategy and buff me up so that I can survive when you go down, I'll get us out and we'll still pull off a quasi-win. Oh, and those... Those are all sometimes the best, most exciting wins where everything falls apart and yet somehow we come out the other side. 
only slightly scathed, not unscathed, but um, yeah, it's amazing. I love Shadowrun Crossfire so much. It is my number two best game of all time, in addition to my number two game of the decade. But there's one more to talk about, and if you're a fan of the show, you already know, folks. You already know what this is going to be, except you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, that game came out in 2008, didn't it? Uh Uh-uh. My number one game of the decade is Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Came out in 2015. Pandemic, of course, came out in 2008. And officially, I say that Pandemic is my favorite game of all time. Um, because when I say Pandemic, I'm blanketing all of the Pandemics, the expansions, the legacies, the spin-off games. I'm just saying the Pandemic system as a whole is my favorite game of all time. But in 2015, we were treated to the greatest version of Pandemic of all time. Pandemic Legacy Season 1. And it is phenomenal. It's is now the blueprint. It is the high watermark that all other legacy games measure themselves by. And what is a legacy game, you might be asking? Uh, That is a game where you will play through a campaign, a series of missions to go through a big epic story. Uh, you got to play through 12. Uh, 12 that represent 12 months of a year of the world going to hell as pandemics just ravage the world and we have to race against time to save everybody from the spread of these uh, viral diseases. And we all work together, rush around the world to hot spots. Unfortunately, has pretty uh, um, you know uh, prescient overtones with the world we live in today, uh, of course. But um, hopefully, in our real world, we'll be able to pull off the win uh, just like they do in Pandemic. Fingers crossed. Now, um, Pandemic Legacy... Oh, I'm sorry. I, 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 I was just describing Pandemic. What Legacy means is, as you play through those games over and over and over again, and you work your way through this storyline, you will make choices that permanently and forever change the game. You will put stickers on the board. You will just rip up and destroy cards if there are events that cause things in the world to be destroyed. Um, and these changes generally speaking, cannot be undone. They are permanent. And that is where the legacy comes from. By the time you have finished this, you and your friends who have played all the way through this campaign have created a legacy. Your board, your world is like no one else's out there. And it makes every decision you make so much more meaningful, so much more impactful, because you know it's not that, oh, well, wow, we let that city fall into chaos. We've really... You know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are, might be dead there. And in a regular game, you say, okay, no big deal, we'll put the game back. Next time we come back, everything's uh, copacetic, everything's back normal, we can just play again. But here, if you let that city fall, it's not coming back. And you will have to deal with the ramifications of that forever as you continue to try to claw back all the regions around that city, as an example. And this is, I mean, you know, a Pandemic Legacy Season 1 was not the first game to do it. That would be Risk Legacy. Um, but, and Risk Legacy was, you know, a pretty big, uh, incredibly important breakthrough game as well. But, Pandemic Legacy is where the formula was perfected. And now, every Legacy game that has come out since then really kind of owes a lot of their success to Pandemic. And so far, nobody has supplanted Pandemic uh, Legacy Season 1, including Season 2. Supposedly, we're going to get Season 3 this year. Fingers crossed. And fingers crossed, um, it is, it's superior to its predecessor. But that's going to be a tough, tough act to follow. Because Pandemic Legacy is literally 
and I said this when I did my original run through, the greatest gaming experience, not board game experience, but the greatest gaming experience I have ever had in my life. And I'm going to turn 51 this year. And still, nothing has eclipsed it. It is that good. It is, so for my way of thinking, it is literally the greatest game of all time as for for my taste in any format in any medium and i'm including the games i made because i used to be a video game developer for 20 years yes i'm saying pandemic legacy season one is better than siphon filter Ah! anyway so uh that's neither here nor there that is my number one game of the decade pandemic legacy season one and uh yeah i promised right up front folks that i was going to give you a little bit of something extra so let's jump over and take a look at my research we got 10 years 2010 to 2019 don't talk to me about 2020 we talked about that up front so here's what i did i went on board game geek and I found out how many games were released roughly in each year. Because you can just do an advanced search and find out. I didn't get the exact, uh, this, tw- uh, you know, 2,800 games in 2010. It's really somewhere between 2,701 and 2,800. So I just kind of rounded them all up because I didn't want to count the last page. So I found out, and right off the bat, that's interesting. It, you know, it, it shows how much over the last 10 years our industry has just blown up. In 2010, we had 2,800 games come out. Last year, 2019, 4,400 games. Um, Not quite double, but over the space of 10 years, I mean, that is a huge increase in what uh, is available to us. So many games come out now. uh, It's just impossible to keep up with them, believe me. But, um, yeah, and and we just continue to grow. That is an upward trend. It is not dropping at all, and it's going to continue to grow for the foreseeable future. So just that in and of itself was interesting, I thought. But um, for each of these 10 years, I made note of how many games in my top 10 were in those years. So by that metric, the top 10 I just ran you for the last decade It's a tie between 2010, 2011, and 2014. Each one of those games had two games in my top 10. Um, And, strictly speaking, our last two years were terrible. 2018 and 2019 didn't have any top 10 candidates. So you might say, ah, games are getting like total crap, aren't they? Uh Uh-uh. Because I expanded and looked at my top 100 games of the preceding 10 years. And that tells a very different story. In 2010, of my current top 100 games of all time, games that came out over the last 10 years, eight of them made it into my top 100. Last year, 20 of them. 20 games in 2019 um, were made it into my top 100. Boom. Um now is the time to be a gamer. Do not feel bad if you've only recently come into the hobby and like, oh, I missed all those golden halcyon days when games were better. Uh Uh-uh. For my taste, anyway, we are living in the golden age now. There were great games that came out then, but there are still, there are 10, you know, um, 8 versus 20 uh, games last year versus 8, 10 years ago. So many more games, so much more variety, so many more interesting ideas, so much more potential to meet the needs of so many players it's amazing. So I did a little bit of math, and I said, "Well, hey, of that top 100, uh, you know, of that top 100 in 2010, eight of them, eight of the 2,800 games made it. So that means um, basically uh, a third of one percent of the games that came out in 2010 make it into my top 100." 
uh, you compare that to now, and it's almost a half a percent. 20 games out of 4,400 as opposed to 8 out of 2,800. Um, we have been just steadily rising. Not only have the number of games coming out increased. Not only have the number of high quality, you know, top 100 worthy games increased, but the ratio has fairly steadily increased with a couple of drops here and there. But, um, you know, compared to 0.29% up to 0.45% now, that is a pretty telling story. Interestingly, the thing that really surprised me the most, last year, or the year before, 2018, we had 4,200 games come out. 10 of them made my top 10. That was a bit of a drop. That was only 0.24% of games were truly exemplary, if you consider exemplary to be in my top 100 of all time. So after we'd had a pretty unbroken string of raising from 2015 to 2016 to 2017, just climbing, 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 2018 had a bit of a drop. But then 2019 comes back with a bang and is, again, based on my personal subjective tastes in games, which is a very woolly statistic because, of course, I don't play games that don't work well with two players. I don't rate games that feature a lot of negative interaction. Um, but for Care Bears, like uh, Care Bear couples like me and my wife, 2019 was the greatest um, gaming year in history. And... Uh, that's what I discovered in doing a little bit of research. I thought you might find that interesting. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But folks, uh, that's it. Top 10 done. And uh, um, as always, I'll be back again to, co- to cover a new topic next month. But go ahead. Tell me 2021 isn't... It's not a new decade yet. Fine. Get it out of your system. Uh, but otherwise, folks, have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye.